I want to warmly welcome uh, Barry York to come forward at this time to bring God's words to us uh, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Barry, please come and welcome once again. Well, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be with you. And, uh, you know, you get students coming through the seminary and uh, you meet a lot of people, but some of them just kind of stick to your heart. And that's the way Jared has been. Uh, I'm thankful for his friendship. And he actually continues to be connected through the seminary by serving on uh, the President's Council. And so I'm just very thankful for his inputs into my life and the relationship we share and this opportunity to be with you on a special occasion as uh, God's uh, granting uh, to your uh, church. Uh, I think you're tripling the number of your deacons, if I have that uh, correct. And to help us to think through this together, if you could open your Bibles uh, to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where many of us believe that we see the first... Uh, raising up of deacons in the early church, the apostolic church, and so it's a good place uh, to go. And I want to speak with you today about what uh, I'm thinking of in terms of uh, disciple-making deacons, disciple-making deacons. You can find that on page 1163 in your pew Bibles, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's uh, give our attention together to the reading of his word. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, on this special occasion of being in your house and worshiping you, we are very grateful that we can come before your word, and particularly uh, this day, O oh God, as you give to this congregation uh, these two men as your gifts uh, to them. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would use your word now to help us to understand more fully what it is that you're doing, and God, uh, what we should expect as you do such things in the midst of your people. For we give you thanks and praise, O God, in Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, uh, before I came to the seminary, I ministered in a, a mid-sized town, uh, Kokomo, Indiana, uh, for a couple of decades. 
And our city was an automotive town, and there were big plants in the city, and one of those was Chrysler. And often I would meet people who worked for Chrysler and ask them what they did, and I would get a range of answers from engineers to analysts to administrators to assembly line workers and so forth. But there's one thing that I knew all of those people that worked there had in common. Their ultimate goal was to make cars. That's what they were there to do. They might have been different jobs that they had, but together they were to make cars. I wonder if it's possible to think of the church in that way for a moment here. What's the goal of the church? Or does the church have a product that it's seeking to produce? Well, I think we could say that uh, based on the Great Commission, that we do have something that we are to be making together. The church is to be making disciples. Jesus told the church, go and make disciples of all the nations of the earth. Now, some of us, we're good reform folk here, and we might push back a little bit and say, well, wait a minute, the goal of the church is answered in the first catechism answer. A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's really the goal of the church, and certainly that is the goal of the church. That's why we're here this morning, is to worship and praise and glorify and enjoy the Lord together. But if that's the chief end, what is the means to that end? How do we grow in that ability to praise and glorify and enjoy our God? How can we bring increasing glory to the Lord? Well, we should know, and we saw another catechism question or two uh, in front of us this morning, we're to be preaching the gospel, calling all to faith in Jesus Christ. And as they put their faith in Christ, more and more disciples are to join along with us in enjoying God and in glorifying him together. Our duty as the church is to be making disciples. And we see here, biblically, an example of that happening in that first church there in Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, they were, in a sense, doing their job. They were seeing the Lord honor their ministry of the gospel. They were seeing people converted, coming into the church, and growing into spiritual maturity and service. But in the midst of this exciting growth, they were running into a problem. We're going to talk about that problem in just a minute. And in the process of solving that problem, the office of deacon was born. Just like you need many different types of workers in order to truly manufacture cars, so the church means, needs many different types of workers in order to properly make disciples. And in a sense, that's what the Lord is giving you today as Jeremy and Nate come into this office of deacon. And that's what the, this office of deacon attests to. Now, um, when we think about cars, if I can just use that analogy one more time, if we think about cars, the modern car is very complex. I, I was just talking to a man who owns a business uh, that uh, repairs cars, and he was talking about how he has to keep going back to school in order to learn how to work on the modern 
car because it's so complex. And uh, when it comes to cars, I, I'm helpless. I, I don't know very much about cars at all. My kids and my wife will attest if we start talking about some car and I mention something about a car and they ask me what kind it is, I usually just say it was blue. Uh, that's about all I can tell them. Um, but cars are more complex than just their color. And if cars are complex, my oh my, how complex people are. And we need to know how to work with people as we help them become disciples of Jesus Christ. And we can't just say they're a blue Christian or a red Christian. We've got to learn about them and how to best minister the gospel of Christ uh, to them. So just as the church in Jerusalem needed some help in this work of making disciples, so it is uh, God has brought you to this time where he's providing this help and the ordination of one man, the installation of both of these men to the office of deacon. And we need to really think about what is their job? Why, why does the church need deacons? How do they help in this difficult work of making disciples? Well, let me give you three answers to that question. First, you need deacons because practical problems will arise. Practical problems will arise. That's what we see here in verse 1. There's a complaint, and when we first look at this, it doesn't seem too difficult to tease out. Uh, one group in the church is complaining about another group in the church, it looks like, because uh, they don't think they're being treated equally or, or fairly. Does that sound familiar? It's a very common to uh, man, uh, to our human nature. But there's more to this problem, really. It's, it's actually far more complex than we might think just at a, a first reading as we, as we think about what uh, what we're being told here by Luke in the book of Acts. Really what's happening is we're being reminded here, as I've just said, that people are complicated. They're, they're different. And when you make different disciples, different issues arise. If we were to have looked upon this problem uh, as an outsider, we probably wouldn't have understood it right away. Because what we would have seen are just a bunch of Jewish women uh, getting food and we wouldn't have really noticed some of the differences between them right away. But Luke tells us here that these were Hellenistic and Hebrew Jewish widows. And they weren't alike at all. They might have looked like it at first to us. But they weren't alike at all. These Hellenistic Jews, or some versions call them the Greeks or Grecian type of Jews... They were Jewish people, but they had lived away from Jerusalem, away from the Holy Land, out into other countries. And so they spoke, instead of the Aramaic language common to the Jews in Jerusalem, they spoke Greek. They were more familiar with Greek customs than they were with Jewish ones. They probably would have read uh, Plato or other Greek writers rather than Jewish authors. They probably ate different foods and uh, like gyros and uh, those types of things. And there would have just been a unique difference between these two groups. The Hebrewish 
Christian widows would have been more tied to their homeland, their old customs, and doing things a certain way. And these groups of uh, Hebrew widows, before they became Christians, would not have assembled together. They would have been in their own synagogues, and it was the gospel of Jesus Christ which unites all kinds of different people under that gospel had brought them into the same church, and it wasn't easy. We know later in the book of Acts, a huge problem is the difference between the Gentiles and the Jews. But here, even among a similar people group, there are these difficulties, these problems that arise. And you know, that's the way of life in the church. More often than not, the difficulties that we have in churches isn't always theological, but they're often practical problems that we encounter. And you get a feel for that as you go through the epistles in the New Testament, as the authors are dealing with different struggles in the church. Though we deal with them theologically, a lot of these problems are just practical. James talks to people about how hard it is sometimes for the rich and the poor to worship together and treat one another the way, particularly the poor, the way they ought to be treated. Paul spoke to the church at Corinth, and of course they had a wide range of uh, problems from uh, the ways that uh, people were conducting themselves uh, morally to those who were educated and wise versus those who were not and so on and so forth. Paul and uh, to, uh, the church at Ephesus uh, talks about different people groups learning to get along, like masters and slaves. And so misunderstandings, different ways of doing things causes problems in the church. And when these needs arise, when these problems come, when we have these challenges that are facing us, we, we, need, some, we need to call upon some experts, uh, some that can come in and help us diagnose and, and, and figure out as a congregation what to do, and that's where deacons come in. That's why perhaps even, it's just not the numbers, but perhaps there are certain issues, I don't know, but there's some reasons why your church has been led to elect these men into the office of de deacon. And one of the things that we just got to keep before us is that people are so different, even if they look alike. Even if they look alike. A while back, uh, I was involved in a, a ministry to a group of Chinese Christians. And of course, to me, the Chinese look pretty similar to one another. And at least from my way of seeing things, it looked like they got along okay. I mean, I couldn't understand what they were saying often uh, when they were together and speaking their native language. But one of them that I was more close to began to open up to me and tell me that things weren't going very well in this group of 20 to 25 people. He told me that there were problems because some of them spoke Mandarin and others Cantonese. Some of them were from the mainland, while others were from Taiwan or Hong Kong. And they thought differently and responded differently to situations because of that. And they were breaking down in their relationship and the fellowship that they had. Their customs, the way of seeing things, their tendencies, they were preventing them reaching deeper fellowship with one another. And that's one of the things we need to remember as the church. The old King James Version used to say, we're, we're a peculiar people. 
we are very different from one another, even if we look quite a bit alike, according to the flesh. I was, uh, when I came to RPTS, one of the exercises I took myself through in order to uh, prepare myself better for uh, teaching pastoral theology was just to read a bunch of pastoral theological works down through the history. What people in different ages said you needed to know about being a good pastor. And I was surprised with one of the dominant themes that came through. Of course, one of the things that came through, you need to be a shepherd. Well, I, 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 I expected that. But the thing that really struck me so profoundly was just this. How varied the body of Jesus Christ is. Martin Bootser, in his work concerning the true care of souls, he starts his book off that way just talking about how many scripture verses testify to that we're a body, but we're, we consist of many parts that are different from one another. And all the way back through church history, even to a guy like Gregory the Great and his pastoral rule, he talks about how people can be different. And he, in this particular section, he's trying to help preachers understand that when you're preaching, you've got to realize there's different people that are listening to you. And he gives a list of 33 different contrasts. And let me just give you a few of those. I'm not going to go through all 33. He says there's men and women. Well, we see that one. But you know what? I have to teach my seminary students in preaching classes. Remember there's some women out there. Because sometimes it sounds like they don't think about that as they're preaching. You have the poor and the rich. The joyful and the sad. The wise of this world and the dull the academic and those who aren't, the impudent and the bashful, those who will rush right into any situation, those are always holding back. My wife and I recognize ourselves in those. We'll let you tell us who you think who is who. <laughs> the forward and the faint-hearted, the impatient and the patient, the kindly disposed, just see every situation is good, and the envious. The simple and the insincere, the whole and the sick, the too silent and those who spend too much time in speaking, don't look around the room, the slothful and the hasty, the meek and the passionate, the humble and the haughty, the obstinate and the fickle, and on and on he goes because people are different. And every time God brings a new person into your midst, he brings a new dynamic to the body of Christ. I was in a church plant, a small congregation, and I was amazed sometimes when just one person would come in and it would have a, a reorientation effect upon the whole of the congregation. Sometimes because of the problems that person brought, sometimes because of the gifts that person brought into the life of the church. And the church has to be a place, if we're going to make disciples, that we're not trying to conform everyone into the same shape, if you will. Because the beauty of the body of Christ is though that we are one like our God is one, we also have been made in these beautiful, this beautiful variety and this beautiful giftedness where we're here to serve and help one another. And yet those differences 
can cause strain and difficulty. And deacons are to be ministers of mercy who are given a lot of these problems to figure out. That's why I love deacons. We used to have this little stuffed animal. I think it was a bear. You could push its belly and it would say, I love chocolate. And uh, I kind of wish I had one I could push and say, I love deacons. Because as the ministry around me grew, as those phone calls came with families needing groceries, or after we got our first church building and for the first year or so, uh, because we were too poor and maybe too cheap to uh, acquire a trash service uh, the trash went in the back of our car and we took it home and put it in our alley. And because uh, the thermostat didn't work always all the time or there would be a family in the church who was uh, not able to pay their heating bills that month or because we had guys uh, showing up drunk uh, in our building on Sunday mornings and on and on it goes, how I got to the point where I just loved my deacons <laughs> because I could say, guys, can you please help take care of this with me? And often they would say, we're not going to just take care of it with you, Pastor. We're going to take care of it for you. And they took it off my plate. And that really takes us to the next answer to the question why we need deacons. It's not only because of the problems, but because we need specific solutions. Specific solutions have to be found. Problems can sidetrack ministry. Problems can even split, split uh, can split a ministry. This could have broken into a faction in this church. There could have ended up two congregations, one on one side of the street called the Hebrew Christian Church of the Messiah, and the other one called the Grecian Christian Church of Christ. We see that all through our culture today. But instead, they saw this problem as an opportunity. It was a window to take the ministry forward rather than being distracted. The apostles saw this. They knew that if, if this problem wasn't given a particular solution, a specific solution, uh, the church would lose its zeal and its power because the word of God and prayer, as they say there in verse 2, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And so they go on to say, give us these men because this will happen. We'll then devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of, this, of the word. This will continue to happen. We will be devoted to the spiritual life if you'll come and, and give us some help in tending to the needs, the physical needs in the ministry. And so this was an opportunity. An opportunity to see other laborers brought into the ministry of making disciples. And it's very easy to read this story, look at this story, and conclude, we talked a little bit about this in the class, to conclude that the ministers of the gospel, they had the important job of the word and prayer, and this serving table, that was just serving food. Let's leave that to, quote, lesser people. And that would be an erroneous thought. Because these go hand in hand with one another. And both of these ministries are called service. Both of these are called the service. 
When uh, the apostles say we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, it's the word service of the word. It's the same word that they're using when they talk about serving the tables. To be a servant of Jesus Christ. Any act of service we render on his behalf has a heavenly weight to it. And never do we see in the gospel as our Lord Jesus Christ who, so think about how many gospel accounts of, are of Jesus just dealing with one person, one individual. And why are they coming to Jesus? Because they have a need. They're blind, they're lame, they're mute, they have a daughter who has died, they have an illness, a bleeding, and they come to Christ, and he touches and he heals them, even as he brings the ministry of the word to them. And that's the way the elders and the deacons are to act. And that this is a, as to be, I believe, an elevated office in our minds is seen here by the quality of the men that are called forth in verse 3. They are to be men of good repute or good reputation. And they are to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. They're going to need the wisdom of God. They're going to need the spirit of God in order to be able to discern at any moment how the scriptures apply to these difficult, practical, theological situations. And so they raised up these men who were godly, who, who knew the Lord, who knew the scriptures. And there's another interesting thing about them. It's seen in their names. That as the Spirit of God is working here in this church, it would have been very temp tempting for the Jewish men, the, the true Hebrews in the congregation, just to keep the holy club going. But instead, the Lord leads them to call forth seven men with these Greek names to help them in this ministry. It's a sign of the church expanding, of the nations getting ready to receive in a greater way the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's so many lessons that we can gain from what's taking place here. It, it shows us the need in ministry to train up others to be involved in that ministry. Notice it says, brothers, pick out from among you seven men who are already like this. And I'm sure as the congregation looked around, just as you've looked around, it became pretty obvious who were the men who were like this that they could set apart to this office. And seeing the Lord raise up leaders in a congregation is exciting. It's a sign. It's a promise that God desires to do greater and further ministry in your midst. And you may have in mind some of those things you think may happen. But I guarantee you God will take you to places that you're not even thinking about right now as the spirit works. We learn here too how important as we think about 
how we need deacons to have specific solutions found, how it just shows that these men have to be willing to get involved. There has to be this immediate willingness to get involved in the life of other people. Discipling takes time. Discipling takes great effort extended. It's a giving of yourself, a laying down of your life for the sake of other people. And so we have to learn how to do that and grow as we do that with others. One family, sometimes even just one individual can come into a church and immediately get the church just feels overwhelmed with what do we do with these mental problems, these relational difficulties, these court cases, these financial needs. And it teaches you and trains you as you get involved that you have to look to the Lord to provide the wisdom, the resources necessary to help. My wife and I belong to the College Hill Reformed Presbyterian Congregation uh, located right there near Geneva College. Kelsey's family, a number of her siblings are there with us. And I would say about our church, and I think our church would say about itself, I'm trying to give honest assessment. It's a wonderful, caring congregation. But life on the hill can be a bit comfortable. There's a lot of professionals in our congregation, people who do quite well. Of course, there's a lot of uh, people from the college, both students and professors alike. And there's a little bit of a buffer zone living up there on the hill, lots of friendly neighbors around, fellow Christians around uh, there on the hill. You know, it's been fun to watch every now and then God just kind of shake us up as a congregation and teach us how to learn to do mercy better. One night I was going into a session meeting and standing outside uh, looking at our church sign was an older gentleman, portly, unkempt, seemed pretty simple, and he's just staring there looking at our sign, so I said, can I help you? And he asked me a question I've never been asked by anybody before. Do you have an evening service? I mean, I've never been asked. Uh, the first question someone asked about a church, do you have an evening service? And I uh, described to him this, and then I went on in to my meeting. And a couple of days later, he wanders into the church. And I give him my name, and he asks for my name. And he asked me if I'll give him a ride to the evening service when I called him. And so I said, sure. And for a couple of years, I brought Thomas to church. And he didn't necessarily fit in. But it was amazing to watch as people got to know him and see this, this uh, older man in body, but a child in mind, uh, express just very openly what he needed. I need somewhere to go at Christmas because I don't have anywhere to go. Can I come to your house for Thanksgiving? He would ask. And other requests such as that. Or I think of Jay that God's brought into our church. He's about my age. But you would notice that he's a bit different. And he would be quick to tell you that part of that's caused because his mother used drugs when he was still in the womb. But it doesn't stop Jay if you're in the middle of a conversation from coming right into the middle of it and doing his latest Elvis impersonation. And as you see the church loving him and learning to love him, 
the beauty of the kingdom of God is demonstrated. And to see Jay give testimony to God. Sometimes Jay will come up and ask me a question. Something that doesn't fit into his paradigm of what it means to be a Christian. And then he'll just go and sit down on a pew. And you can just see him thinking. And he'll come back up and ask me another question. Or someone else. As he's trying to figure out more. What it means to follow Jesus. Disciples are difficult to make. And of all people, deacons have to be willing to be involved with those difficult cases. And it often means meeting the needs of the moment. It's like being a doctor. You're, you're, in a sense, you're always on call. And those calls to the church always come when you least expect them to come, when you're at your busiest. And to have deacons will do anything to, to drop what they're doing in order to meet a true legitimate need. Even serving old women food. Saying, count me in. Shows they must have the Spirit of God in them. Because who would volunteer for something like that? You need deacons because specific solutions must be found. But finally, you need deacons because endless expansion can occur. Endless expansion can occur. Remember, what's the job of the church? What's its product? It's making disciples. Well, look at the end here of this passage, verse 7. It says, after this, the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. God blessed the ministry of this church. And I, I want to point out two of these men in particular, the first two men who are mentioned in this list. You see, often we can limit in our minds what deacons are to do. We say they're to take care of the building and they're to take care of mercy ministry and uh, maybe the budget. But we're told here that Stephen is especially uh, noted because he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't read it, but in verse 8 it picks up his story and it says he was so full of grace and power, he was doing wonders and signs. God was using him mightily in Jerusalem to the point that he got the attention of the council. And you know the story of Stephen. That he was boldly refuting them as they tried to argue against the gospel. To the point they bring him to the council and put him on trial. And he ends up being the first martyr of the church, but not before heaven was opened up. And Stephen saw the true court of God. And his Savior, his judge, the scriptures say, standing there, watching this, knowing that he had the true deliverer that he had just preached to this council. What a mighty man. Don't limit your deacons. Philip is the next one on the list, and his story gets picked up after Stephen's. And God 
uses him to preach the gospel to that Ethiopian eunuch, you'll recall, who himself takes the gospel back to his own homeland and country, and we believe through church history spread it there, as God uses him mightily to bring the gospel to a nation. In Acts 21, verse 8, he's not called Philip the deacon. He's called Philip the evangelist. We should have great expectations as God works through deacons. I've known deacons who have worked all their life quietly serving the poor, and that's wondrous work. I've known other deacons, and the, the deacon is not a launching pad, but it can be a place where people are developed and, and find other places to serve. And I've seen deacons go and be elders or go to seminary. I've seen deacons go on mission fields and serve alongside missionaries. And so let's not limit what God might seek to do through giving you deacons. But the last insight I want to draw as I conclude here is in the last phrase of verse 7. I can't remember you do a video series, and I can't remember what's in it anymore. So I may have mentioned it there, but it's worth mentioning again. Because notice who else is impacted in Jerusalem. It says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And you think about that. Why did Luke include that? Why did Luke, the gospel writer who emphasizes mercy ministry in his gospel, include that. Well, remember what the priests were to do. The Old Testament priests were the ones that were to collect the tithes and the offerings, and there were special ones particularly that they were to distribute to the widows, to the orphans, to the strangers. They were the ones given the duty of being ministers of mercy. And I have to believe They'd probably heard the gospel. I bet they had resisted it for a time. But then when they saw this congregation truly caring for people and loving people the way that they were supposed to do for the widow, it broke their hard hearts down, their resistance to the gospel down. And many of them as well came into the kingdom of God. There is a war going on for the hearts of people. There are agencies and government uh, programs and all that you will encounter here if you dare get involved in the life of the poor and the weak. But if God blesses you and you minister the word and sacrament alongside these deeds of mercy... May God take those who have resisted the gospel for their humanitarian approaches. And may they, through this congregation, see Jesus healing and restoring people as he works through you. May God be blessing you today with disciple-making deacons. Let's pray. God, our Father, how we thank you for your word and for the practicality of it as you record for us 
what the early church was doing. We pray, Father, that you would bless now as uh, we move into this part of the service where Jeremy and Nate will be coming forward to be placed into this office. And Father, we pray that your spirit would work mightily here to use this congregation uh, to bring uh, good deeds alongside the gospel of Jesus Christ to this broken and hurting community. And Father, may you cause the number of disciples here to increase greatly. Bless them, Father. I ask it through Jesus. Amen.